You're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, the audio supplement to our blog of the same name about the signs, art, and popular culture of Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm Mark. And I'm Niels. Episode 20 is an All Yesterday's 10th Anniversary special, as Mark and Neil speak later to the book's co-author and paleoartist, John Conway, who surely requires no other introduction than that he must now have merited the status of living legend in the paleosphere's estimation. Before that, our not-quite-so-vintage dinosaur art discussion is the book itself, All Yesterday's by John Conway, C.M. Cosiman, and Darren Nish, published by Irregular Books in 2012. But first, uh, ought we to cue Aaron Copeland's Appalachian Spring here, Niels? What's this about a new ornithomimosaur? Ah, yes, Appalachian Spring, late Cretaceous Spring, if you will. Um, as you might know, in the Cretaceous, what is now North America was actually two continents, right? Uh, you've got Laramidia in the west and Appalachia in the east, separated by a sea. Um, most late Cretaceous American dinosaurs that we are familiar with are from the western portion, that's Laramidia, which is where you uh, find your ecosystems of your Tyrannosaurids, your Ceratopsids, your Hadrosaurs, and so on. Um, late Cretaceous Appalachia remains a lot more mysterious. We only know of a handful of dinosaurs from the east of America. Uh, what we do know is pretty strange, and it is about to get stranger. A new paper out in PLOS One by, I apologize in advance for my uh, heinous pronunciation, Chinzorik Tsongbatar et al. describes an assemblage of ornithomimosaur material from Mississippi hailing from the Santonian, which would have been right in the middle of the late Cretaceous. The material consists of mostly legs and feet. It is uh, limited and fragmented, but we are definitely looking at at least two new yet unnamed species of ornithomimosaur, one of which would be uh, quite big, comparable to uh, Gallimimus, while the other one would be absolutely enormous, closer in size to uh, Dinochirus, or if you will, to T-Rex. Yeah, work T-Rex in there, like a, like a true science journalist. Of uh, course you did, obviously. <laughs> together with uh, recent discoveries of things like the... Uh, quite cleverly named Arkansaurus, har-har, an earlier ornithomimosaur from Appalachia that was also uh, quite large, it is increasingly becoming clear that along with dromaeosaurs, nodosaurs, primitive hadrosaurs, and non-tyrannosaurid tyrannosauroids, such as dryptosaurus, giant ornithomimosaurs were a big part of the Appalachian ecosystem of the late Cretaceous. The paper is open access and will be shared in the show notes as always. Fantastic. Anyway, it's a um, tantalizing prospect that there might be other Dinochirus-sized ornithomimosaurs in the yeah, world. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's fantastic news. They might have not been confined to Asia. I think the authors have been intentionally vague in saying if they think it's an ornithomimid, right? Because the, the, the ornithomimids are your ornithomimus itself, Struthiomimus, which are human-sized, and then Gallimimus, which is a bit bigger. Uh, and the non-ornithomimids, ornithomimosaurs, those are the Dinochirids. And uh, yeah. th- there's there's actually a few of them beyond uh, Dinochirus itself. But they're, they're big, presumably, these bits and pieces. I mean, unusually the, biggest, big. <laughs> the biggest bit they found would point to an animal the size of Dinochirus, which is itself the size of T-Rex. Yeah, pretty much. Th- that, that would have been a huge animal. And it would have been the biggest mm. animal there, probably. We haven't gotten hadrosaurs over there that are 
massively huge. And like I said, the biggest uh, predators they found there are non-tyrannosaurid tyrannosauroids. So the the one with the longer arms. Yeah, so dryptosaurs. It, it might, might be the, the largest large. dinosaur there. Great. Thank you so much, Niels. You're welcome. Uh, Mark, size is misleading in all kinds of ways, and not least for this particular early theropod. Okay, so forgive me because I have a cold, but <laughs> here we have... Osteology of Jurassic Dinosaur Population Reveals Variable Growth Trajectories Typified Early Dinosaur Ontogeny by Daniel Barter, Christopher T. Griffin, and Mark Norell, who you might have heard of, which has been published in Nature Scientific Reports and is therefore open access, so you can go and read it um, for free. And this is a study analysing various fibulae and tibiae uh, from Cedophysis specimens that were all found together as part of a bone bed in the Cedophysis quarry in New Mexico. Because they all died at the same time, it was a pretty unique chance to look at uh, ontogenetic variation in Triassic dinosaurs. There have been previous studies on Platyosaurus and Massospondylus, but they were from different horizons, as the authors put it. So they weren't all from the same place and time. Um, in any case, it would appear that Coelophysis growth patterns are more like those of modern-day crocodilians than birds. Um because, as the authors note, crocodilians exhibit a relatively high degree of morphological, histological, and body size variation during growth. Um, and that similar levels of variation are widespread among non-avian and non-mammalian amniotes. So, indeed, one would expect early dinosaurs to show more of this sort of crocodilian-style variation in ontogeny. In other words, growing up at different rates, different sizes, mature individuals being quite different sizes. Taking cross-sections of the bones, examining them, uh, plotting various... Uh, attributes characteristics um there's basically there is uh, no steady directional relationship with either age or size so it appears that as i said they were all uh, the growth has slowed down at different times um they're maturing at different stages which is indeed consistent with what was found f- for platyosaurus and massospondylus before so a bit more further information to back that up um there is a caveat here um, they do note that this may reflect a common environmentally induced decrease in growth across all age classes, which could be the thing that, you know, race to the thing that killed them all, <laughs> whatever it was, some kind of drought or catastrophe, um, which resulted in this bone bed existing. Uh, a, a drought wouldn't kill them all at once, right? Um, no, but it, it might have led to their the reduction in growth. Um, so they apparently show reduction in growth all at different ages and different times, different sizes, uh, as in the growth slows down. But that could be related to um, whatever happens in that environment. Right. Um, however, they do also say the two things aren't mutually exclusive. So there could be an indication of a bit of both here. Um, and indeed, as I said, it is consistent with what's been found for other Triassic dinosaurs. So in other words, imagining this bird-like trajectory for the growth of early dinosaurs is probably wrong. Um, some later theropods are more like that. But they mention uh, Silurosaurs in the paper. But yeah, early dinosaurs probably maturing at different um, sizes, different ages. Uh, so intriguing prospect. I also really wanted to mention this because the paper was promoted with artwork by Chris DiPiazza, who, as you know, we interviewed. And it's a bit of a mate right. of ours. So hi, Chris. <laughs> like, like the artwork. I'm sure we hi, can Chris. put it on the, uh, the show notes. It's beautiful. And so is the artwork. Yes, Chris is beautiful, and so is the artwork. <laughs> <laughs> what a beautiful beard he has. Sorry. What a handsome fellow. Uh, <laughs> made me ugly snort there into our podcast. That's quite reprehensible. Oh, no. 
<laughs> Fantastic. That's wonderful. Thank you, Mark. Well done. And uh, finally, from me, uh, some more light to shed on dinosaur mummification, courtesy of our old friend Dakota the Edmontosaurus, in a new paper published earlier this month by Drumheller et al. Biostratonomic alterations of an Edmontosaurus mummy reveal a pathway for soft tissue preservation without invoking exceptional conditions. Now, our understanding so far of dinosaur mummies is that they are relatively rare and they excite us as much for the often remarkable level of preservation which affords us glimpses of life appearance as for the fact that this preservation can only have been formed under extraordinary circumstances. They seem to require that the animal be protected from scavenging by extremely rapid burial in environments that prohibit decomposition. But Stephanie Drumheller of the University of Tennessee Knoxville and colleagues explain in this paper that it ain't necessarily so, in a process which they term desiccation and deflation. The authors identify unhealed bite marks from carnivores on Dakota skin and bones, marks indeed from scavengers during the perimortem interval, according to the abstract. Uh, the scavengers, by the way, are said to be crocodile relatives in this case. These were definitely not marks which occurred while the animal was alive. And what's more, as exquisite as the preservation of Dakota skin is, it is draped over the bones in a markedly deflated manner. The author suggests that the incomplete scavenging of Dakota's carcass of the internal tissues is what had allowed gases, fluids, and microbes associated with decomposition to escape, allowing the more durable soft tissue, such as skin and keratin, to persist for longer periods and to desiccate before finally being entombed and fossilized. This process is consistent with many carcasses of extant animals. We are familiar, I think, of images of carcasses being essentially hollowed from inside out by scavengers. The conclusion here is that Whilst there are other pathways by which dinosaur mummies are preserved, this process at least certainly does not require exceptional conditions, and that such mummies are perhaps not so rare after all. And that being the case, there are further implications here perhaps that in our focus on the bones, it is not impossible that unrecognized or overlooked skin impressions that have been preserved in this not uncommon way may have been lost in the cleaning and preparation process in a good many fossils. The paper is published by PLOS One and is open access. Yeah, I'll bet you anything that some of that stuff's been prepped away over the years. It's <laughs> highly, you know, highly it's likely, bound to have happened. Mm. Yeah, especially during the Bone Wars, right? Oh, goodness. Well, yeah, that, and indeed, the just the 19th century in general, the real early 20th century as well. The, the early days of the science, people didn't really, they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> they were Fools. just prepping away everything. Fools. Blind fools. So, of course, it's only a matter of time then before we finally forget that T-Rex mummy um, and everyone has to <laughs> everyone has to shut up about their preferred hypothesis if it's wrong never mind t-rex <laughs> i'm still holding out for that spinosaurus mummy oh good lord anyway uh, should we mention at this point uh nati uh how uh, how you and dakota the edmontosaurus go way back well not quite so way back a little earlier this year when the um uh, a new exhibition opened at uh, the north dakota heritage center in which the the newly prepared right hand of dakota was returned to display um uh, you will recall i think from earlier episodes that um 
we, I, reported on this news. And uh, I did have an illustration um, of Dakota in the exhibition. And the same illustration, indeed, has been used uh, in this paper as well. Um, so we do do go a little way back, but not quite so uh, so far as as um, as I would have flattered myself with. <laughs> very nice illustration, it is, Dave. Thank you very much. It's it's wonderful. It's one of my favourite hadrosaur reconstructions, actually. Thank you, Niels. And now for our not quite so vintage dinosaur art. Yeah, can't very well play my usual jingle here. Not quite vintage dinosaur art. <laughs> <laughs> just record, choice, record a special one for this. <laughs> yeah. Just okay, to... here it goes. Not quite vintage dinosaur art. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for giving me that, sure. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Absolutely applaud your efforts, Niels. Don't be so quick, you haven't heard it yet. <laughs> okay. Anyway. All Yesterdays by John Conway, Siam Koziman, and Darren Nish, uh, with supplementary skeletal diagrams by Scott Hartman, let's not forget. Um, it's a comparatively slim volume, uh, which quite belies its impact, as it turns out. Um, adjectives such as seminal are surely not unwarranted in this case. And uh, the All Yesterdays movement, as it came to be called, is recognized within the paleosphere, and its reach is even filtered outside it, so as to pose questions regarding dinosaur life restoration even to some mainstream audiences. Uh, so where would we like to start? I would say it's funny, well, looking at this now, how unremarkable a lot of it seems. I guess we've got grown so accustomed to living in the postal yesterday's world in the last 10 years that a lot of the stuff in here is just, oh, well, there's a camptosaur approaching an allosaur that's sitting down, you know, so what? Um, there's a T-Rex sleeping, so what? <laughs> that kind of thing. It's like yes. um, heterodontosaurs with quills, so what? Yeah. It's just, it, it doesn't seem like a big deal at all. Of course, at, at the time, this stuff was uh, quite astonishing. Yeah. I mean, that's surely the yeah. mark of its impact, that we've now grown so blasé about these ideas, which um, at the time, at least, which would surely have, have raised eyebrows, if nothing else. Exactly. I mean, it's not like none of this had been done, because some things in here had essentially been done before i mean things like wrestling theropods being unusual to see in art was true um obviously greg paul did it but then greg paul was more the exception to the rule well jan sovak did it as well oh okay there are always exceptions <laughs> but uh <laughs> but the, i guess the point being made is that the vast majority of the time these giant theropods are slow as shown as um slobbering killing machines going around you know tank-like unstoppable behemoths murdering everything um whereas here's one's just sleeping peacefully and it's a presentation as well um which when we spoke with john which is going to be after this um chronology is hard but um <laughs> when, when we spoke with john he mentioned that it, it was made what well, his arts his artwork at least was actually done quite quickly um, and the reason some of them have sort of rather sparse backgrounds it was i mean it was partly a stylistic choice and partly so he could churn them out really quickly <laughs> but uh but it, it really works i remember it having such a distinctive look at the time when compared with other um paleo art books the fact that the sleeping stand for example which is given a whole double page spread as it should obviously um it's best dinosaur Yawn. but um it's it's just a sort of uh well it's a very it's a very plain minimal background um uh, and 
yeah, it's it's so it's so peaceful with sort of the choice of the leaves falling gently down and uh, yeah, the, the look on the animal's face somehow. It's just in such stark is, contrast yeah. to how we're used to seeing the animal, yeah. both both stylistically and in the representation of behaviour. Um, and I think there's a lot of um, sort of stylistic departures in here, which, as as I will also say in the interview, cough, which don't get remarked upon that often. Oh, you you bet I will do that pretty soon. Yeah, so you should. <laughs> I think we uh, we need to remark upon the strikingness of its coloration as well. Yes, and especially true of Memo's pieces, because as usual, Memo is uh, slightly bonkers. And <laughs> <laughs> no, Memo's great. <laughs> Love Memo. His Stegosaurus piece is one of the most famous ones from this book, quite for obvious reasons. But um... There's not much of him in here, though, compared to Conway. I was just leafing through it, and of the proper dinosaur reconstructions in here, I think he contributed about four. He maybe contributes more to the all today's section yeah. in the back, um, and again produces some of the most remarkable, terrifying-looking reconstructions there as well. Yeah, but the, the stark, flat color choices that he makes. I mean, I don't think that Stegosaurus piece would have had quite the impact he did if it was done in a more sort of realistic way. With no, exactly, definitely. definitely. No. That's exactly right. Yeah, the, I can't think of any better word than stark. I'm sure you could, Nati. You're actually artistically literate. But, uh... <laughs> no, no, that is an absolutely perfect description for it. I mean, because um, we will come back to this later when we start talking about uh, stylistic treatments. But, but yes, you are absolutely right. Because it's so uh, deliberately flat um, and it's not attempting to, to be illusionistic in any way, uh, it's all the more striking for that. And, and as you say, the color choices mean it's just essentially just just black and brown. Um, yeah, and and I can't resist saying that it looks like uh, a traditional print. Uh, so it could have been, it could essentially have been made in in any traditional printmaking method. And then it it obviously because of that it conveys. Uh, exactly what it wants to do mm-hmm. and highlights exactly what it needs to do uh, that much more uh, uh, remarkably. Um, it's, yeah, it's that contrasting colour, isn't it? <laughs> the kind of direct opposite uh, exactly. of the body colour. You, you which... Yes, I am being uh, extremely delicate, as is my want, <laughs> in, in not mentioning... Unlike the... Memo. <laughs> but it you, is, you know it is exactly what we're referring shocking. To. Yes, exactly. It's like, what is that? And then what is happening in this scene? I, 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 said, I don't think it would have the same impact if it was realistic. First time I saw it, it really took me a while to to see it, you know. And once you what, did. <laughs> yeah, and once you did. But once you did, you couldn't unsee yeah. it. Exactly. Yeah. The text wonderfully complements the image by saying, look, uh, Stegosaurus, it had a bunch of plates on its back. It was really heavy, you know. Perhaps it required something yeah. unusual to get this particular job done. Right. How else was it going to do that? <laughs> and, <laughs> and now, and now I, now this is this is Stegosaurus. Now, Stegosaurus is ruined. Thank you, Memo. I'm sure you'd be <laughs> delighted to hear it. Because <laughs> well, there's also John City Patty on the previous page. Ah, yes. But that's with the infamous ducks corkscrew. Yeah, it's safely dead though. It's, it's not going to come after us. <laughs> Uh, anyway, as you we were saying, okay, so the, stylistically, the the choices made really help ram home the unusual nature of the behaviours being depicted and, and emphasise the point being made greatly. Um, but I suppose, yeah, some of the some of the behaviours, I'm trying to think if there are any in here that are still striking as unusual. I mean, I think the Protoceratops up a tree, actually, 
is one of them. I don't know if that kind of thing still has been hasn't been done very much in the past ten years. That kind of um, unexpected yet entirely plausible behavior of that nature I or maybe i just haven't seen many protoceratops well, up trees you know I if, you, if you put a protoceratops up a tree now everybody'd go like yeah that's all yesterday's you nick that yeah I guess I well yes that's exactly i it. mean that that happened with prehistoric planet um and the carnotaurus oh yes <laughs> and it's plentiful all yesterday's um moments yeah and I, I think i think the main the main takeaway from the book has always been look these are animals and animals do weird stuff. Yeah, it was all about breaking away from the stereotypes that had built up around their depiction and behavior, um, how they'd always be doing the same sort of thing. Not necessarily that the art was wrong before, but just that they were always, you know, giant theropods are always hunting smaller animals or, well, even, they're always hunting. They're always going after something with their mouth open and teeth bared. Um, and obviously there are a couple of um, rebuttals to that in here with the, Allosaur sitting yeah. down, as I mentioned, and of course T Rex stuff, and stuff, stuff like that happens on the African savanna all the time. Yeah, exactly. On that point, um, what you were saying earlier about the fact that there is uh, something of the rebuttal in in many of these pieces in in showing them as just animals doing mundane, ordinary things and not going charging about like a kaiju. But uh, the the really interesting thing about that is that. After this, um, once the, the movement got going, lots of people began depicting animals doing boring old stuff, just mooching about <laughs> and, not, and not going on, on a kaiju rampage. To the extent that, that there was uh, another wave of rebuttals uh, to that in that, come on, you know, they, they did hunt. They did, you know, they did go crazy sometimes, <laughs> you know, and there was almost a, a reactionary response to this whole just peacefully being boring animals thing where they said, yeah, but that's, that's been taken to almost the extent of a trope now. And we want to come back to the animals being dangerous and scary and toothy as well. Again, that just demonstrates the level of uh, influence that this book has had. Um, that it that it's spurred uh, counter reactions upon counter reactions. You know, it's it's, yeah. it's wonderful. It's one of those wonderful cultural things. But yeah, uh, coming back to things that uh, that look outlandish even now. Are there any more in here where we say, okay, this this is still pretty weird? I think the um, the Triceratops comes to mind. Oh, the Triceratops. Yeah, where. The idea is that the scales anchored these spines, and not a lot of people have followed on with that idea. I think sometimes you have the scales anchoring quills, but not these big sort of spiky things. Um, I guess nobody else thought that was particularly yeah. likely. Even then, <laughs> I think I think the triceratops or ceratopsids with quills, I think that had its moment. I don't see that much anymore. No, that's true. Uh, I think because, again, there was a reaction to that where there people were putting them on every ceratopsian. And then other people said, hang on a minute, they probably weren't on literally every Ceratopsian ever, uh, so maybe we should stop. And and there are actual uh, Ceratopsian researchers who actually do object to this because because of the lack of evidence for it. Um, so yeah, there is that. Oh, I was going to mention the unusually fat Parasaurolophus as being one. Oh, right. Um, that, that you don't really see that kind of thing very much. Um, like, yeah, obviously, they've dinosaurs have had a bit more meat put back on them. Uh, following sort of super lean reconstructions in the 90s and 2000s. But um, you don't really see any that are just like corpulent like this. <laughs> Not really. Um, I mean, that is one very chubby 
Parasaurolophus. Well, three of them actually, three very charming Parasaurolophus. Um, and, but then, then there's a memo um, Lambia saw on the next page, which just looks like a, oh, a strangely coloured, but per- otherwise perfectly good Lambia saw. And Isn't nothing it that particularly beautiful? It. Yeah, I absolutely love the colours though, mm. and the uh, the big neck think, uh, thing. I think for all the uh, for all the attention that the Stegosaurus gets. That's my favorite piece of, of memos in this book. Of memos, mine too, for, for entirely two obvious reasons. Uh, quite, quite apart from the fact that it's gorgeous, yes. of course. I mean, but, uh, yeah. But uh, another, another one, um, I think, on the uh, still striking us as pretty unusual even now is the Oranosaurus with its wonderful lychee hump. I, I just love that. It's just beautiful. <laughs> and it's pretty yeah. weird still, I think. Uh, again, though, just like just like with the Triceratops, I think this is an idea that has sort of fallen out of favor with experts, right? Yeah, well, the funny thing there is the text even seems to dismiss it, but then they show it anyway. It's sort of like, well, some people have had the idea that it could have had a hump, but it probably had a sail. But, hey, here it is with a hump. Because... <laughs> You never know. You know, given given how quickly, uh, especially John's portion of the book came together, as he is going to reveal in that interview, it it, it isn't that surprising that he made that choice. Yeah, we have right. to spoil the interview quite a bit, don't we? <laughs> but yeah, um, I think okay. So unusual ones that you still don't really see: the bottom dwelling camouflaged plesiosaur would be one. Plesiosaur, really yes. Too many like that. It's... That that one always had me going. How does that work then? Because every so often it has to come up for air, right? There's a reason you don't see <laughs> yes. mammals doing that. Yeah. I'd, mm, I mean, they mentioned, I think, it obviously would have had to come up every so often, but it could have spent a long time. Obviously, being aquatic, it would have been able to hold its breath for a very long time and stay there and sit there. But yeah, I don't know about that one. Um, so to come back to, to our earlier point that we, we introduced about stylistic choices, this is something I really especially wanted to talk about because, I mean, the other great uh, impact that this book had, apart from introducing new ideas about life restoration and animal behavior, is this departure from the uh, what we might call a realist uh, or an illusionistic attempt at depicting these animals and exploring lots of different styles and approaches, um, which, uh, as we bang on forever, um, is is one of the core uh, interests of, of our blog and podcast and something that I'm passionately um, interested in. And also, if I might add, very much something that would set the course for uh, for the career of John Conway for the years to come. Exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly what I was hoping to come on to. Because, I mean, in in all of this, this um, prefigures almost um, John's forthcoming book, uh, The History of Painting with Dinosaurs, um, which I'm very much looking forward to seeing. But, but already in this book, John was laying that groundwork in the, the many different stylistic approaches um, uh, that he explores in his artwork, which nevertheless all recognizably look like his work. You can tell they're John's, even if the uh, the styles and the approaches vary a little in each one. I mean, for example, the Heterodontosaurus um, painting. Um, it looks to me at, at first, uh, the first instance I saw it, it struck me as looking like a, an Edward Hopper painting. You know, this is as, as though Edward Hopper had painted a Heterodontosaurus. But, you know, but but John's, <laughs> if that makes any sense at all. Um, but uh, and then there's another great favorite of mine: the 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 illustration of the Lielinosaurus, 
which is um, uh, has been painted in the manner of a Japanese woodblock print, to the extent that uh, not just with the flat colors and lines and shapes that look like they've been uh, carved out of woodblocks, but to the extent that John has painted wood grain, if you look closely, uh, into this image. Really? <laughs> yes, oh, so that has. it looks as though it has been printed. Exactly. Yeah. It's a woodblock print, essentially. I mean, this is just my one of my uh, favorites from this book. Not only because of the uh, bizarre looking uh, to our eyes then, Lealonosaurus, which is just a fluff ball with long tails and a, yeah. a, a broom at the end. Um, but but because yeah, and you know and you know I how much I love Japanese prints, and and all of it comes together in this illustration so beautifully. I I just adore it so much. I'd never noticed the wood grain thing. Well, there you know it. it. No, me <laughs> no, well there you go. One we haven't talked about a great section of the book here, um, which I don't know. It kind of falls slightly outside of our purview, or does it? No, not necessarily because it is essentially a discussion of Paliwatch. Yes. And that's the all today's section. Yeah. AKA the meme section. The meme, the meme section. section. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> oh, the meme. Sorry. I thought you said the mean section. Well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit mean in places. It's, uh, it's just saying, what would future paleontologists get wrong if they had very little knowledge of our modern animals? Um, and what kind of. It's, it's both that. It's both saying a comment on how much we can't possibly know, um, how easy it is to misinterpret things based on scanty evidence, and also. There are a few paleo art tropes thrown in, like the prime example being the cat, um, which has the face sort of the holes in its skull delineated and the, and the margins of its skull delineated by these scales in a way that's extremely um, Greg Paul and his many imitators. Do you reckon um, Greg Paul a... took offense? Probably not. Um, but I suppose it, it's less a dig at Paul and more a dig at his many, many imitators because that just became... I was copied so often in books in the nineties. I remember it. They almost, like I just remember in these books, always seeing um, theropods with their orbits outlined with this sort of neat like, row of big scales, exactly like this. And of course, it's got the undersized eyeball as well. The whole sunken face look going on. Um, so yeah, there's that. But of course, the th the ones that gained real traction, especially in the media, were things like the baboon. <laughs> Uh, oh no, it's a spider monkey. Sorry, spider monkey. But the spider monkey is eh, primates. You can have terrifying, <laughs> terrifying. And, and I mean, some of, the, some of them in here are kind of obvious. Like, oh, if you found a hippo and only if you only knew a hippo from a skull, obviously you'd think it was some monstrous thing. Which, which in a way, arguably it is. But yeah, although it doesn't have jutting <laughs> horns everywhere, you could say. Um, nor is it a carnivore. Is what's implied here. And yeah, the featherless birds, of course, that's sort of, sort of nod back to paleo art history. And this is where Memo really gets to let his freak flag fly, right? Yeah, Memo produces some disturbing things. Like, as I said, like the featherless birds, like the spider monkey, which is one of the most... I mean, the, the spider monkey's on the back cover as well. So clearly they neither one's a good thing with that one. <laughs> or a very disturbing thing. It's, uh, yeah, I suppose... And that's just saying, well, if you only had the bones, would you necessarily put the correct amount of musculature and fat so yeah effective i'm using commentary on um on paleo art and uh, quite thought-provoking as to what whoever comes after us in millions of years down the line will make of um today's weird and wonderful menagerie <laughs> will they will they get things right what, what will they get right will they get wrong it's fun to imagine um that's a very it's a very memo thing to consider yeah. i think 
that he naturally shines there. Do, do you reckon people misinterpreted, uh, especially that last chapter? Because I think a lot of people kind of took it seriously, maybe not necessarily Greg Paul himself, but um, some people some people could interpret this as a personal attack. I think that's very likely. Which, of course, it wasn't meant to be, but there we are. Yeah, I think that's likely. And um, and this is, uh, it's why your, your calling the meme section is is highly pertinent, Niels, because, yes, yeah. because it's, it's since become the subject of memes. Um, I mean, the idea itself has almost been regarded as a trope um, by some people. And, and yes, it's highly likely that some people have taken uh, some umbrage um, and taken it almost as a, an attack on, on how they have, uh, up until then, reconstructed things. Um, I think that's only inevitable. But anyone who understands reconstructing past animals um, must surely understand that, that this is just, you know, it's par for the course, as it were. And that no real malice is actually intended in any of this. Um, yeah, it's just it's just the way uh, the process works. Yeah, it's a continuation of saying there are some things that we just can't possibly know. Um, mm. Yeah, and we shouldn't pretend that we know everything and that we've always got the last, you know, definitive reconstruction. Except, of course, for that Bob Nichols Cetacosaurus. That is now Cetacosaurus. Um, there can be no arguments. Uh, <laughs> and of course, uh, a certain reconstruction of Edmontosaurus, because you know, I don't think, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think our view of Edmontosaurus <laughs> is going to change very much. <laughs> but okay, but in the vast, vast, vast majority of cases, um, there are things that we don't know, and it's a fool's errand to sort of pretend that you can definitely know absolutely everything about. Yeah. An animal that's been extinct mm. for that long, and that's just to right. carry on making that point. Yes, the Something unknown unknowns. Personal digs. But yeah, the unknown unknowns starts sounding like Rumsfeld. <laughs> uh, <but>. Exploring <laughs> the yeah. possibilities. Exactly. Yeah, I think, um, and I, I think everyone who is engaged, like Nati said, everyone who is engaged with um, reconstructing and researching prehistoric life uh, knows this on some level. And I think this book is uh, is a great reminder of. Um, being humble before nature and uh, being humble of the yes. things that we don't know and being open-minded about the, the possibilities of what we may not be yeah, grasping. It's exactly. why you probably shouldn't get so worked up about theropod lips. Because <laughs> no. no one actually knows <laughs> at, this sure at this point. Well, aim into that. Indeed. So today, Niels and I are speaking with John Conway the well-known artist of dinosaurs and other things am i meant to am i meant to say something there <laughs> yeah you're meant to say hi right. yeah hi 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 john we'll keep this whole bit in um <laughs> john doesn't understand cues but he does understand paleo art very well and indeed we're here to talk today to talk about mostly a book that um john well co-illustrated 10 years ago um and authored by a certain darren Nash, uh with well, must mention Scott Hartman as well. He's on the cover. He's on skeletal diagrams. Anyway, um, All Yesterdays, which is one of the most influential paleo art books of possibly this century so far, arguably. Luckily for us, it hasn't gone that far yet. So, you know, no, we don't have you, a lot of competition. Um, so, yeah, we'll just talk about the history of the book and its legacy, especially obviously it's been it's a significant anniversary this year. I know you're going to talk about it at TetsuCon as well, um, Darren's 
posted about that, I sort of trailed that. You're going to have your discussion. Uh, so we're going to pip Darren to the post, obviously, and talk about it a bit here. Um, take that, Darren. So I guess starting with the genesis of it, where well, where it came from, who's, whose idea was it? Was it an entirely collaborative endeavor or was it a case that, um, you know, one of the other of you said, why don't we do this book that just overturns all these rubbish, um, endlessly uncreated dinosaurs? <laughs> That's a pretty uncharitable thing to say about the stuff that came before all yesterday's. Um, Very much. <laughs> I'll, I'll take the cue. Uh, yeah, uh, to be honest, I don't actually remember. I think I emailed Memo or I was in a conversation with Memo about it. And so it was sort of... Uh, um, the idea of me and Memo. Like a lot of things, it wasn't wasn't really clear that we were going to do a book, right? We we just sort of were shooting around some ideas. I decided to do a um, presentation at SVPCA, which is the Symposium for Vertebrate Paleontology and Comparative Anatomy. And so originally it was a presentation. And um, in fairly typical Memo style, he hadn't got a lot of pictures done for that initial presentation i think only two so the majority of it was mine right so i gave the presentation at svpca i put in for a, a talk at the conference but i thought it was such a crazy topic and such a crazy talk that it would be good if it was done somewhere a bit less formal than the main talk sessions right um and i spoke to the organizers about this and they actually gave me one of the icebreaker talk which was set in the pub which was really nice so I got to deliver the first sort of shot at all yesterday's, which is most of my pictures of the the first part of the book, which is the um, alternative dinosaur and other prehistoric animal reconstructions at SVPCA in the pub with a pint in my hand. And being at the time a very conscious uh, digital artist, um, all my work was digital by then, I believe very much in the future of digital art, I decided... <laughs> decided to do the most ridiculous thing, which was I'll uh, get all my work printed on slides and present it with ridiculously old, but very nice projector from the 50s. Um, right. <laughs> so I projected, uh, I, I presented the original uh, first little piece of all yesterday's on a projector in a pub in Lyme Regis. And I was expecting a little bit of laughter, some people to go, yeah, that was really cute. That was funny thanks and basically you know a bit of chat afterwards but not any sort of real strong interest but several people came up afterwards and said that it was well a kick in the seat of the pants so several people said and um, I realized that perhaps other people would be really much more interested in this than I realized so I can't really claim that I was a visionary that this was going to be like the way paleo art would go or anything like that. I thought it was a bit of a joke, to be honest. I thought it was poking fun at what we were doing. I mean, it is in a sense. It is. It is poking fun at paleo art conventions and saying, well, what if we did something completely different and a bit silly? Um, yes. Silly but plausible. Indeed. But I didn't realize that paleontologists would also think this. You know, I thought it was aimed more at paleo artists, but conversation in the pub afterwards it became really obvious that this was something paleontologists were really interested in too um, right anyone interested in you know how dinosaurs are presented i think uh darren was one of the people that came up obviously and said yeah <laughs> yeah 
yeah, that was that was fantastic. Um, and Memo and I decided that he he would write the um, originally what were considered the foreword, and then naturally Darren came back with the incredibly long detailed um, introduction, and he helped out on the main text so much that we thought you know this is a considerable amount of this work is Darren, and therefore we we added him to the the by line. Yeah. Um, yeah, Memo doesn't get a lot of credit for writing the book, but actually the main section of the the of all yesterday's is is hugely his I see, work. Okay, because yeah, didn't seem to assume basically that Darren did the text and you and Memo did all the arts. That's not necessarily true. Then, in fact, Memo did write a lot of it. In fact, yeah, Memo and I after the introduction, it's it's mostly Memo and I wrote it, and I would say it's it's probably you know fifty percent Memo. Uh, 25 me 25 darren something like that. i think it says a lot that you all seem to gel so well that it is believe you could believe that it's written by a single person and you all seem to have a similar sense of humor as well uh, which really works <laughs> yeah it was really fun writing it we wrote it in google docs so you know we we're literally writing over each other's sentences and stuff and i think we obviously had very similar ideas about what sort of tone and just the structure of it should be we didn't really have any difficulties writing it and we're, we we did that for our next book as well. You know, Memo, Darren, and I really seem to work well together when we can actually get together to work. Yeah, when which <laughs> you're you're very busy. Um, <laughs> yeah, very very busy. Busy, uh, busy, busy. Busy, busy, busy. All things so much. Um, so you already had some illustrations. Presumably, you re, re, blah, you reused some of the illustrations from the presentation in the book, and then kept with a load of others. So. Basically, uh, actually, um, mm. virtually all the original, the book's first section, you know, not the uh, speculation of how yeah. f- modern animals would be reconstructed. All my work there, I think, was in the presentation. So I was pretty much done at that stage. So I'd finished in, oh, in really? the style that we work in. <laughs> I had finished and Momo had barely started. But Obviously, after I did the presentation and we decided that we were really going to make a go of it, Memo came through with at least as many pictures as I did and possibly more. So, yeah. And then we decided to do the second part, which was actually also a presentation at SVPCA, which I did, Yeah. which is the All Tomorrow section, which is how animals would be reconstructed by future paleontologists. Arguably the most infamous section. Yeah. Yeah, the ones we memed a lot. <laughs> Indeed, so. that was the bit that was really popular with the press. Actually, you know, in the initial sort of wave of publicity that we also weren't really expecting, those images, especially Memo's images, got uh, were picked up by many outlets because I guess they're quite they're quite interesting and quite uh, nightmarish. Some of them, aren't they? Yeah, the baboon and such. Yeah. Actually, I think one of the most insidiously nightmarish is the I think it's a bowhead whale, which is depicted as some kind of eel-like creature swimming through kelp. With this enormous gulper eel type head on the front that's just sort of contrasting. That that there's something deeply sinister about that image. So I think it's it's very atmospheric. And you know, it's it's much more scary than yeah, the nightmare baboon in my opinion, which is yeah, okay. Although the uh, the spider monkey is another one, I think. I think yeah, Memo Spider Monkey got a lot of attention just for being so terrifying. Yeah, the bowhead whale is one of mine. Um and I think I had in mind for fans of cryptozoology, there's a there's a um, famous photo of some sort of giant tadpole type creature to, um, taken in Queensland, which is basically a black shape under the um, under some boats, 
which has always been one of my favorite creepy cryptozoology photos. So I think I kind of had that in mind. Yeah, did you have something painting. specific in mind for, for all of those All Tomorrow's reconstructions? Because a lot of it really reminds you of very specific things that we do when we reconstruct prehistoric animals. Was Was there something specific you had in mind for all of them? Not really, no. I mean, you can sort of see in some of them, you know, the, uh, for example, on the cat, you can bring to mind some of Greg Paul's um, really precise scale work over over theropod faces. The book was not aimed at against Greg Paul um, depictions, because no. actually, I think Greg Paul did a lot of stuff right, oh, you know, and a lot of his speculation and stuff actually presages all yesterday's. So there is some of that, I guess. Others are just jokes, obviously. Some of them are very subtle, I guess. The manatee is reconstructed as a land cow. Yeah. That's actually a scene in The Simpsons. Oh, some kind of land cow. That's some kind of land cow. So I actually took that scene yeah. in The Simpsons and did the painting based on a, a still frame from The Simpsons of some sort of land cow. You've got like a manatee-ish head on it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Some kind of land cow. <laughs> exactly okay so your work was already done and then obviously memo um who works to memo schedule had to uh produce his work so uh, how long did it all take to come together in the end the whole thing so it was, it was a year and a bit because it's published over two it was created over two svpca so it's a minimum of a year but i obviously started work before the first svpca and i think we published very shortly after that in november so yeah a year and a half but that's a bit of a exaggeration because it's not like we worked on it full time in fact the entire first section of the book all my paintings took six weeks <laughs> that's fast because we decided very late memo and i that we were going to do this presentation we'd actually presented a different thing the year before but it was really tight and <laughs> I guess uh, this is part of the reason Memo didn't make it, didn't 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 get his work done because he had something else on and it was just so tight. I had to work full time for six weeks to get the paintings done, obviously. So actually, my the total amount of time I spent on paintings for all yesterdays is tremendously small compared to the output, the rest of my output. A lot of the paintings were really fast. They had to be. Yeah. I didn't have time. Would that explain why some of them have quite sparse backgrounds? And also it's a stylistic choice, one that's actually going to mention, because obviously Darren mentions in the foreword or the introduction that you, there are a lot of deliberate departures, obviously, in terms of how the animals are reconstructed and introducing more fat and fur and fluff and speculative behavior and so on. But it doesn't talk that much about the um, stylistic choices. He does mention how your dinosaurs tend to be quite or well, prehistoric animals in general tend to be a bit more muted than we might have seen up to that point and how they've slot better into their backgrounds in his opinion which yeah it's fair enough it's uh kind of a hallmark of yours probably quite um it's fair to say it's quite dark henderson influenced because i know you've yeah, um, yeah. you've praised henderson before yeah but there's also quite a few what i would regard as being quite significant sort of stylistic departures from what you'd expect to have seen in paleo up to that point and in particular i was thinking of the hypsilophodon which has it's sort of un I don't want to say unfinished. It's like, it's like deliberately unfinished. So, uh, you know, part of its body is just an outline that then fades off to nothing. It is, I don't know, it's, it's very effective because it then really draws your attention to what it's doing with its hands and mouth, which is devouring a centipede, I think, isn't it? Uh, or a millipede. Sorry, a millipede. millipede, yeah. Yeah. But then, as I said, the next sort of gets progressively less detailed until you just have a kind of um, painted outline of a, of a body. 
and well, even some of the other illustrations. Like obviously, you have Tenontosaurus in a landscape, and that's a full landscape. Um, but then you've got things like Camptosaurus and Allosaurus, which are standing in a very minimalist kind of background. And indeed, the cover image with the Protoceratops in a tree, the tree, and there are some rocks, and that's basically you know it. Was that was that purely down to stylistic choices, or was that a bit you were turning out lots of artwork in a short amount of time? Yeah, you've you've discovered the secret. This is very much me under time pressure. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot of the sparse backgrounds. You know, I try to keep the visual interest up without having to do that much work because <laughs> I simply didn't have time. That's a good approach. So absolutely. What, how I did approach that was to be far more arty than was my my style at the time. And so, yeah, the sparse backgrounds, some of the odd styles I've got in here uh, were definitely part of the time pressure and in fact the ones without sorry the ones with really detailed backgrounds are generally stolen from another series of paintings i did for a presentation i'd done with memo the year before at svpca i reused a lot of those backgrounds so for example the aranosaurus with its crazy big hump was actually yeah. a painting of Dinochirus originally, which I took out <laughs> and put in Aranosaurus. Yes, as you imagine, six weeks from starting to presentation, and that included getting them printed. Um, <laughs> I just did not have time for full backgrounds usually. I was going to ask a bit about the choice of animals in this. I mean, obviously for the prehistoric section, um, but I suppose it's just what came to mind <laughs> at the time. But yeah, was, was there any particular rhyme or reason to the animals you went for in this apart from t-rex obviously we don't count that one <laughs> the others i think there's sort of a tension here between showing unusual ones that people don't usually think of and showing really familiar dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals yeah. in um in ways that you might not think and actually i've generally tended towards taking familiar dinosaurs and making them strange so I think there's sort of that tension. But to be honest, the book is not that deliberate. It was, you know, as I say, done in such a such a hurry that the amount of discussion about which particular things we were going to do or its structure or any of these things, they just they didn't really exist in in the original painting phase, which is where the whole thing comes from. So yeah, basically it was me picking up a well, picking up a stylus <laughs> for my for my, uh, my digital tablet at the time and thinking, right, I've got to get onto the next one really, really fast. What's the idea? What's the, you know, pick an animal really just very, very quickly. For my part, I think, you know, it's almost random. I think some balance there, you don't want to be hitting certain types too much. But apart from that, mm -mm. Memo probably thought about it a little more, but then also, I think he's probably similar to me. It's ones he's interested in. You get an idea, you find an animal that sort of exemplifies it, or the animal is intrinsic to the idea, and you go for it. Interestingly, there is overlap here, you, which is a mistake, right? Because of the early rushedness of it. We both did yeah. the same idea about um, Abelisaurus. Yeah. Yep. That's just an error. We didn't mean to have two pictures. We but just, it is the one that made it into prehistoric planet. 
Ah, uh, yes, it did make it into prehistoric <laughs> planet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it was an idea so good we did it twice <laughs> with uh with carnotaurus in particular obviously um which yeah. was yours and uh, the uh, i think it was majungasaurus was memos um, yeah which again memos um artistic choices here conspire with yours to make it to make the book that much more visually interesting apparently not necessarily deliberately so <laughs> well um it's been 10 years how how do you feel about it now, now that we're all 10 years older, especially given that it came together so quickly? Do you ever look back on this work as, are you really proud of it now still? Are there things where you feel like this is a job very well done? Are there particular pieces where you feel like, I probably would have done this differently if I had a bit more time, or if I would go back to do it again, I would do this differently? How do you feel about that, John? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, interestingly... I think I have a different opinion to Darren and Memo. And Memo and Darren are pretty keen on doing an updated version, right? Um, sort of incorporating what we know now, correcting some things. There's typos in the book, for example, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I know bother Darren ter- tremendously. Um, <laughs> but it's not just that. It's sort of the idea of um, that this should be a rolling thing to a certain extent. And I'm not. I'm not entirely against that. I just don't have a lot of enthusiasm for it. And I've asked myself why. Why don't I really have a lot of enthusiasm for this sort of thing? You know, revisiting all yesterdays. And also, yeah, I have no regrets. Uh, I don't look at it and think, oh, I wish I'd done that different or I missed out on that or anything like that. Not that I think the book is perfect by any means, but because I think that it was a lucky strike and turns out it was what was needed at the time. It sparked yeah. the imagination at the time. There are things wrong with it. There, are, You could go and look and think, oh, I wish I'd spent more time on that painting or I would have swapped this painting for that painting or, you know, I wish we'd speculated in this way, had better specula- speculative ideas that came out later. But I, I actually think its place, as I see it, is very much what it was at the time. shouldn't be um, trying not to sell my book here, but you know, how relevant is it to a current working paleo artist? I don't really know, right? I think that a lot of the things that have stirred up have changed the paleo art landscape so much that, you know, someone entering it now, they might look at it and say, well, so what? And they'd be right. <laughs> so I, I kind of view it as this spark in time. And it's interesting from that perspective. And if you're interested in paleo art and you want some crazy pictures that I did in six weeks and some way more careful pictures that Memo did over a longer period of time. And you're interested in, as I said, maybe the history of how things happened. But I sort of, yeah, I see it as very much a, a point in time. So that's how I look at, look at it. Uh, there's no point in regretting it or or thinking about what I would have done differently or or any of that. It's, it is what it is. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I quite agree. Maybe, um, maybe the book was more about the general ideas expressed within it rather than any animal or any reconstruction in particular, right? Absolutely. I, in fact, I don't think many of my ideas are very good, to be honest. Um, <laughs> and I've certainly had better ones since. But it was definitely, yeah, it was, a, it was sort of a bit of a, looking back, maybe a bit of a shout of frustration, which I know lots of paleo artists were sort of feeling and we'd never really put our voices to it. Are we just sort of, are we stuck in this mode of what we do? Uh, and so that was more of a, well, let's call it a protest book. <laughs> Yeah. Than a manifesto. I see what if you see what I mean. It's not a manifesto. I definitely agree. Yeah. I definitely see that. And I, I've always harbored the suspicion that this book did come from sort of a place of frustration, right? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, partly sort of not because no one was holding us down. You know, it's not like we were oppressed. But <laughs> frustration, uh, I, I felt a lack of my own creativity, you know, uh, looking at my work and thinking, oh, yeah, you know, kind of some neat ideas in there but basically it could be done by anybody over the last 10 years it's not really very i mean interesting some artists have been constrained by what publishers want uh, i've been spoken to a few artists like that who haven't had the opportunity well the, the publishers wanted very specific things that often just mimics what came before them and that's they just wanted to be well, in Civic in particular, yeah. <laughs> so, but also in this sort of Paul clones or JP clones throughout various books. And that's the whole, um, what Darren's saying in the introduction, that people are stuck in a particular mode that clearly he wants to break out from. Yeah, indeed. I think that also museums want very specific things and it's very difficult to um, convince them otherwise. I'll, I'll give a shout out to Bob Nichols here, who works very much with museums and therefore is one of the most constrained pay artists there is. Um, in terms of making a living um, and he, the demands on what they want his stuff to look like and how much he's managed to move things along in that respect. There is a tremendous amount of constraint, although I will say that I don't think that was the main thing going on because the work being churned out that was very samey was mostly from mm, semi-professionals and amateurs or people that weren't really constrained um, right. like me. Because in many ways, it was a protest at my own work, right? I need to break myself out of this mm. thing that I'm doing, which isn't isn't very interesting, I felt. There are some paintings from back then that I think are good, but I don't think that the general shape of my work was very interesting at all. It was basically Greg Paul dinosaurs in more slightly more arty landscapes, maybe, you know? Yeah, um, slightly more Henderson. Yeah, slightly <laughs> more Henderson landscapes, exactly. Oh, I had influences, you know, Ellie Kish and things like that. But you, the, all these things were just sort of echoes of um, of the 1980s yeah. revolution. I suppose that's the thing. The, the 1980s, as you said, that, 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 um, I hate to use this word, but that paradigm was still uh, very much at the forefront at that time. Um, oh, stuck in the paradigm, man. Stuck in the paradigm. paradigm, man. I'm so sorry for using that word, but I had to. Uh, I couldn't think of anything better at the time. Which actually neatly leads me into the next question, which is, do you feel like we've entered a new <coughs> paradigm now? How do you feel about the influence that the book has had on the paleo art community over the past 10 years? There has been all those <laughs> memes, of course, and um, maybe uh, some of the uh, ideas in the book have been misinterpreted, not least by me. I guess what I'm asking is, do you still see the uh, the influence that the book had? And do you think it's been a positive influence or are there things that you're frustrated with? Yeah, I mean, this is the most obvious question, isn't it? And uh, I've never known how to answer it. I think paleo art is more interesting now than it was <laughs> beforehand. But to be fair, I think a lot of people were thinking this at the time anyway. So I'm not sure how much of it is all yesterday's causing it or just being an early symptom of it. Right. I'd like to take credit, but yeah, maybe it broke broke down a few barriers there. And certainly there was a lot of really quite out there stuff immediately afterwards. Um, <laughs> yeah, I remember that very well. <laughs> yeah, which Memo got together in a book called uh, All Your Yesterdays, um, which, which you can download for free, by the way, um, which is, yeah, a lot of fun. Um, and actually, I think all that stuff needed to be done because dinosaur paleo art had become very restricted in sort of a false um accuracy you know a false precision i should say it was quite a narrow range that was considered accurate and i think that 
the problem with that was it was both too narrow and slightly off target. And what we needed to do was make it a lot broader and find out where that the the middle should roughly be and try to avoid false precision and think that uh, the totality of the paleo art someone might see might reflect more the the actual range of plausible options and some average somewhat near the what we think is probably the reality. I've never been a big advocate of super colorful big dinosaurs, for example. I don't think that's that's tremendously likely. I could be wrong about that, of course, but mm-hmm. there's a risk if you are constantly trying to amp up every image with a lot of speculation, bright colors, crazy plumage, you know, um, display structures. You're going to make out that all these animals had all sorts of crazy things going on. And I do think we need a bunch of boring pictures of just basically no speculation, drab colors. no display structures (laughs) Um, because the average might work out in terms of what we think the paleo world looked like you know i think we are trying to impart some sort of notion of naturalism and what the what it was like to experience the the world of the mesozoic the average of what people see see is actually important immediately after all yesterday's people went very very strongly for the speculation wild speculation yeah. Which I think was okay. I, I actually really liked a lot of it, as long as we didn't keep doing that, because that wasn't really the point. But we didn't. I don't, I don't think there's a lot of artists nowadays just churning out really highly speculative stuff all the time. That's not that's not what's going on. So probably go on to your work more generally, because in particular, our co-blogger Sophie had a question, um, basically um, wondering if there were any animals that you avoided due to uh, controversy around them or ambiguous anatomy or overexposure and i'm, I'm going to guess the answer to that is no but um... no in fact my favorite area is those three things yeah so if all those three things overlap i'm in there great okay i suppose uh it might look like i'm avoiding spinosaurus yeah i'm not i just haven't actually done it i haven't thought of a good idea of how to present it even in an even stranger way or like upside down in some ways which i like to do so <laughs> <laughs> I um, guess some things are so crazy by themselves. There's just not really much for me to add, is there? <laughs> I was going to say Sophie's other question was whether there are any species that you haven't done that you'd like to do. But I guess you just answered that with Spinosaurus that you'd like to do at some point when you think up a good way of interesting way of presenting it. I suppose I have got a Spinosaurus picture, which but the pro the thing was uh, which I'm quite pleased with, by the way. It's on my website. You search for Spinosaurus, you'll see it. It was actually unusually for me a commission for a museum. It's not actually just me sitting down and thinking about how I want to depict science Spinosaurus. It's, it's got other constraints on it, yeah. which is, as I say, a bit unusual for me. But I think it's a nice painting. Uh, a lot of people um, disagree with it now. You know, it's basically the wading hypothesis, maybe a bit of swimming. So, you know, quite controversial, I guess. But what are you meant to do? I, I can't remember what the yeah. consensus was when I was doing it. I mean, I was, it was meant to be not crazy because it was for a museum. Yeah, so, but there yeah. still isn't a consensus, is there? No, it's, of course there isn't a consensus on that. Um, no. <laughs> I do find, I've got to say, I find some controversies really, really boring. And therefore, yeah. they're just not like, I'm just not very interested in wading into such things. So a lot of taxonomic stuff I find really dull. Yeah, and at the moment you're working on your big book principally i guess anything else coming along that you can or can't tell us about oh no i can so great perfect timing with the podcast i can plug my new book yeah which is you know specially timed not that i was taking ages to finish it or anything you know 
for the 10th year, 10th year. It'll come out with a new book every 10 years. And, you know, every single yeah, one of them yeah. is going to be a massive hit. It's called mm -hmm. A History of Painting with Dinosaurs in brackets. The premise of the book is what if all the great artists of history, let's say 50 of them that you can name, had painted dinosaurs? And so what I've done for the book is painted a whole... Um, there's 50 new works in it, none of them seen before, which are um, dinosaurs in the style of great artists. Because part of my interest with All Yesterdays was also a bit of a stylistic rut that we got into right. in paleo art, which I actually think hasn't been broken very well. And I think it's one of the things mm -hmm. I would like to see more of. I do see some stylistic divergence, but I'd like to see more. I would like to see really distinctive styles in paleo art. Yes, I quite agree. And so this is part of my motivation for the book. It's 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 dinosaurs in all the styles, all the styles you can imagine that could possibly depict dinosaurs. That's the premise. I'm launching it for the, anyone that's in London or can make it to London in November on, um, let me get this right, Saturday the 19th of November. And you can go to my website. Or actually, you can go to events.johnconway.art. And book your place. It's free, free drinks. Hey. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm going to be talking team. about the book and it'll be for sale. If anyone wants to turn up for that, it'd be great. Make me look popular. <laughs> you know, hey. you want to be in there on the ground floor of the next All Yesterdays, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. Cool. Thank you. And I'm in another book too, actually, um, which is coming out soon, which is the next um edition of the world's greatest paleo art which i don't have the details to i should have lined I that mean, up i uh, mean mesozoic art mesozoic art that's right sorry yeah. that's much better unofficial sequel to the two dinosaur arts because it's a different publisher it's yes. a spiritual sequel it's a spiritual sequel exactly yeah. um and that's interestingly that launched the same year as all yesterday the original one launched the same year as all yesterday's as well so yeah, quite a lot yeah. of when you're in the original one you're in the original one right Yes, I was in the original one. Yeah, busy year for you, then. <laughs> so you can see in the original one all the art that I was talking about being frustrated with. Hooray. <laughs> Interestingly. So, yeah, it'd be interesting. Um, yeah, get, get both of those, everyone, and um, compare my sections and see if I've actually improved. <laughs> well, excellent. <laughs> for all my talk. Yeah. <laughs> Idea for a blog post there. Has John Conway improved? <laughs> <laughs> Have a little poll afterwards. Yeah, yes or no. Leave your comments, everybody. <laughs> thanks very much for speaking with us, Yes. John. Oh, no, thanks for having me. Privileged to be on. Thank you very much, and uh, we look forward to your talk at TetsuCon in December. Oh, you've got to come to my thing first. Might be a bit more difficult for you, Niels, I do agree. Yeah, I, I probably will. But um, if I don't see Mark, I mean, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. I mean, no invitation to your birthday next year. Okay, better stop recording that now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, John. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you again, John, for speaking with us. Yes, thank you very much. It was lovely. Lovely indeed. It's been fun revisiting this book. Um, the launch event back in the day was fantastic fun. It was a great talk. Um, I'm hoping that the launch event for John's next book, which um, depending on whether it's been cut from the interview, <laughs> John's next book, of course, being launched in London on the 19th of November. So I, I haven't cut that. No. OK. So John's next book being launched on 19th of November. Hopefully that will also be a, a good time. Um, I'm looking forward to it. 
as well as Tetsu Con, of course, in December. Yes, I won't be at the launch event, but I will be at Tetsu Con. And uh, yeah, we, uh, we're going to do a special. We're going to do a Tetsu Con special after that. But uh, hush, hush on what we're yeah. actually going to do. Hush, hush. Because we haven't hush, worked hush. out yet. Assuming we can actually get our act together and figure something out in the meantime. So, oh, we've got eight years. It'll be like a week before. And then we're going to go, ah, what do we do? So uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll see a lot of you there at either the launch event or TetsuCon or uh, quite possibly both. Because, uh, hey, if you're in the area, you might as well do both, right? Yep. And if you're at TetsuCon, it would be a good chance for me to return some of the bo- books that I borrowed for you in the past and never gave back. That is literally happening with one person. Yes. <laughs> And if you ever wanted to smack me in the face, well, here's your chance. Well, no, don't do that. (laughs) But please, but please do come to speak to us if you are a listener, because we're obviously we love hearing um, from our listeners and what they have to say. Yes, I'd be delighted. I'd be delighted to meet some fans. Yeah, we'd be good. Or, you know, critics, maybe. But less delighted to meet critics. Well, even then, I mean, uh, (laughs) I've I've heard some criticism, but uh, I never listen. (laughs) (laughs) It could be constructive. You never know. Anyway, yeah, hopefully see some people. Um, if not, then have a good November. I don't know what to say now. Niels, you're good at closing up. Am say I? Something. Okay. Um, hopefully we'll uh, we'll meet you soon. And uh, thank you as ever for listening. Mark, Nati, thank you so much for potting with me. I had a great time. Well, thank thank you. you so much. And yeah, thanks to the listeners. And uh, we hope you tune in next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurus. Your hosts were Nati Himapan, Mark Vincent, and me, Niels Hasborg. You can find all links and images we discussed today on our blog at chasmosaurus.com. You can find us on Twitter at Chasmosaurus and on Facebook at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurus. If you want to give us your support, please give us a comment or a good review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also support us at patreon.com slash litc. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bronzewing.bandcamp.com. Stay safe, look after each other, and we hope to see you again soon.